Hello, world. In this episode, we are going to talk about my favorite type of startup, a business-to-business -business software as a service startup. Welcome to episode one of Startup Investing for All, the podcast where we deep dive into startup investing. I am your host, Muhan, and across from me is Mary Cornfield, our guest today. Now, Mary is the co-founder of Capitan, a platform that makes it easier to manage a climbing gym. For those of you who read my startup deal memos regularly, you'll recognize Mary's company as a business-to-business -business software as a service venture, also known as a B2B SaaS company. Before Mary decided to launch her business, she was a top performer on the sales team at TeamSnap, which sells enterprise SaaS to sports organizations to help 22 million users better manage and engage with their athletes globally before transitioning to the product design team. Mary also just finished Venture for America's Startup Accelerator in November, where Capitan was voted as the crowd favorite. I met Mary a few years back when we were both Venture for America fellows in Miami, Florida together. Since then, we have remained close as we have supported each other through our respective careers and the founding of our two businesses. Mary, I'm so happy to finally make this happen. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, well, so let's start off and uh, dive into the world of B2B SaaS companies um, and probably start out your origin stories. Why did you choose this business? Yeah, so I worked at a couple of different startups in Venture for America. Um, the first one was kind of a hybrid of a dev shop, VC, little bit of everything accelerator and so saw a lot of different types of companies um, and then I ended up going to work for a company that did online estate planning for individuals um, and the B2C side I think gets a lot of attention um, it's usually what you're using so it's usually more the household names um, but it's super hard to actually get those companies to scale because you just need so many users to make it profitable eventually um, and then also a lot of consumers you just don't spend as much money on software right I spend a little bit of money on Netflix, a couple of other software platforms. Um, but when you think of how much a company is spending on software, it's just so much more. Um, so I saw a lot of these B2B companies, even though they were maybe as glamorous doing really well. Um, I actually had a friend that when I was describing a company I was looking at and thinking about applying to, she goes, oh, that sounds really boring. <laughs> I said, okay, and she goes, no, that means it'll be profitable. Hey. Um, so I think, you know, it's kind of looking at following the money a little bit. Um, and knowing that companies are just going to spend a lot more on software. I love that you already broached that topic um, because I do think that people like you and I from a operator and a practical side, we tend to see unit economics faster <laughs> than uh, mm -hmm. most consumers do. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on that in terms of specifically, I actually had not, I had not connected the dots that you had really been in this uh, B2B themed work experience trajectory until you pieced it together like that for me. So was that intentional for you or uh, did, you know, kind of a happy accident? Tell me more about that. Yeah, I think a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, so the company I worked for in Miami did do online estate planning for individuals. And I think that is a good place where actually B2C does work really well because people are already spending thousands of dollars on their will. So you already knew that there was an interest in them to spend money to get this done properly. Um, so software can make that done faster. Um, it had a real opportunity there. Um, and then after that, I went to work for TeamSnap, which actually had both sides. So it started as a B2C platform, 
So if you're just a coach of your kid's soccer team or a little league, um, you could go and you could pay for team stamp to manage your individual team. So much more of the B2C side of things. Um, but then when I joined, I joined on the sales team, which was focused on the B2B. So actually selling to all of Boulder Little League or a soccer organization to manage everything else, which has a much higher ticket price, um, but does require then a sales team usually to scale that. Um, so seeing both, um, it was really interesting. The B2C side always really focuses on marketing. So how do we just get the word out and get people to buy it? Um, and I think a lot of you know B2C companies sure you hear all the time think you know the way we're gonna make money is advertising right it's this like idea if you get enough eyeballs that then money will just trickle in but i saw how hard it was for team snap which had 22 million 22 million users in a very very niche market where like advertisers are really looking at um you know the average team snap user was higher income bracket and team snap struggled to get advertisers you know from the largest sports organizations that this should be their perfect market um so it just is a much harder, I think, play than a lot of people anticipate. That is so fascinating. You know, like obviously we've talked about your career throughout the years together, but it's never hit me that you would think at 22 million in a fairly specific market that the advertising Not dollars fairly, should just so be- so specific. <laughs> it's like the you most really? specific. Yeah. Wow, 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 wow. Okay, because, you know, uh, uh, another one of the questions I had here is I do think that Again, for you and I, we're so naturally, in, in many ways, uh, trained to think through how software can solve problems and then specifically how you mm -hmm. start to monetize um, software with problems. I know that many of my readers are confused why I only like to invest in software or why uh, I really love this idea of B2B software. So for you as an operator, right, you've now, so you worked out Willie, B2C. Mm -hmm charges money for people to prepare their wills, upsells, generates leads. Great. Then immediately after that, was that team snap? Mm -hmm. Perfect. And that ends up, that very successful uh, startup company still has some rough edges to sand off in terms of thinking through how to monetize the 22 million users that it has. And mm -hmm. also the second business then in, in, incorporates this uh, nuance of a B to B to C, right? You're selling to the leagues, but then the leagues ultimately are passing it. And that really informs mm -hmm. your business now, right? You're not like yep. a pure B to B play where you're selling slide making software for businesses. Like I invest yeah. in a business <laughs> like that. That's even more like, you know, behind the scenes. Tell me about some of the challenges um, and perhaps some of the opportunities of building a B to B to C software platform. Yeah, I think the big opportunity there is that you can make those, you know, the C part of that. Um, your advocates. Um, so while they're never going to pay, if you can make their experience better, then they'll become really large advocates. So something that we saw all the time, TeamSnap was way more expensive than anything else on the market. Like you didn't go to mm. TeamSnap for trying to save money. Um, and so occasionally organizations would switch to one of our competitors um, because it was cheaper and the parents and coaches would like uni. And so they would be back to TeamSnap in a couple <laughs> of weeks. Um, there's like so many examples of that. It's kind of wild. Um, and so I think, you know, the, that C side of things, kind of what I say is our goal at Capitan is to make it easier to manage a climbing gym. And so we're always trying to help the gym managers and the owners that are buying us, but their goal is to make their customers happier, which is their climbers. So we need to build products that also make the climbers happier because if we're frustrating them, it's hard for them to manage their membership. It's hard for them to, you know, view class schedules, things like that. They're going to be complaining to the owner and the manager and the route setters and all the front desk staff. Um, and it makes it a much harder case to explain why they should continue staying with us. You 
when when you switched over to Team Snap, you joined it as a sales team and became mm -hmm. even in my you know casual uh, personal friendship calls with you, I've noticed that you are excellent at running meetings on time, perfectly <laughs> suave, just like really it, it's 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 been incredibly impressive and consistently uh, breathtaking, you know, in a modest way to observe how good you've gotten at running a meeting at making the rain happen, so to speak. Later on, you did transition. Um, and this is a, a very exciting turning point, I remember, to design, to design work for uh, B2B SaaS. And one of the things I have as a question for you is when you're selling, you, you have both experience selling to the business owner and then selling them on the idea that they're going to make their consumers happy with the features. And then you mm -hmm. have actually the design product side of it now, which really did uh, pitch you perfectly for the position you're at now where you're selling Capitan but then also giving huge input into what the product will solve for its users. Can you tell me about how you balance the, the, the kind of the two pronged needs, right? So the business owners yeah. just want to solve the problem and they, they're the ones paying you. And then the consumers, yep. like even I get this in my business all the time where they want everything and anything because they are not bound by constraints, mm -hmm. right? And so they're just like, throw it. They're like, please do automatic scheduling. Please do like gamification of climbing routes. Like yep. tell, tell me about how you balance those specifically in the context of, and this is very specific to, to your business, a bootstrapped B2B SaaS company mm -hmm. that is serving a market that is going through its own experience during COVID, right? And like, we'll, we'll touch on all those things, but just uh, starting from the design feature and thinking of priorities under constraints. How do you think about that? Yeah, so I mean, I live in Colorado, so a lot of my friends are climbers and they know I'm working on this, so they'll always have suggestions for things that'd be really cool. Um, and usually I respond with, well, you're going to pay for it. And they say no. <laughs> so I go, okay, that's kind of the end of the discussion. Um, yeah, it just kind of ends it there. And so I think, you know, even gym owners, right, and managers, there's a lot of things that when you start asking people, like one of the first things you're told as a designer not to actually ask people is, what do you want? Because people want a lot of things, right? or in theory, they would do this, right? Like in theory, I'm gonna go climbing every day and I'm gonna get ripped and I'm gonna be in the best shape of my life. I'm only gonna eat kale and I'll be perfect. Um, but you know what a better question is usually, <laughs> yeah, is like, you know, what did you actually do yesterday? Cause you can't lie about that, right? There's no, um, you know, hope or aspiration and telling of things that have already occurred or what have you already paid for, right? And I think that just shows what actually is interesting to you. Um, so kind of, again, we always say we're, our customers are the gyms. They're the ones paying. They're the only ones that are going to be paying. Um, so we want to make them happy first. Um, so whenever there's kind of a tiebreaker, you know, this default always goes to the gym. Um, but again, we do want to make their customers happy. So we don't want to anger the climbers, but we just know they're not going to pay. So it's not higher on our priority list. Got it. It's kind of like uh, Facebook rolling out their new feed feature where they make their consumers, you know, angry and pitchfork for a month, but then they probably forget. But the upside to Facebook whose real customers are the businesses with the advertising. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. Yeah, that does that does make a lot of sense. It's this whole exactly, idea, right? If, yeah. if you're not paying, and, then you're the product. Mm -hmm, you go. Right, and then there is an issue that climbing gyms do have, which is retention. Uh, so in the fitness industry, retention is around 70% year over year. With climbing that drops below 40%. 
So, you know, if there's tools that we can find out that actually make climbers retain, then that's really interesting. And so if there's features that we need to add for that very specific business goal of the gym, then we're very interested. But to your kind of earlier point, you know, some of the gamification stuff, if it's just for fun to keep the climbers that were already there, probably not going to do it. But if we know that that's going to convert more customers or get them to upsell or to get them to stay, then that's when it becomes interesting. One of the things that you touched on a little bit earlier that I love and, uh, you know, if we spend more time, that's great. If we just touch on it, I think that's also great too, is pricing, right? I, you know, we had worked together. Um, we had texted back and forth. It was yeah. very, and like pricing was, you know, pricing was our pricing was not a science. You know, my pricing could definitely be improved. Like I, I am not on a soapbox. I'm right there in the trenches <laughs> with you. Um, but I love how yeah. you think about how you, how you come from. I mean, actually, now that I think about it, both of the brands you came from, I don't see Willing as like a budget, will preparation service. And I don't see Team Snap as a budget league management software. So in that sense, your professional background has also trained you to uh, not just solve for the cheapest price, which is important to you as a founder. You know, I, I will say the, the, the tacit purpose of my uh, hosting you on this episode is to try and help layman and retail investors understand, oh, this is what a B2B SaaS company actually looks like on the inside. Why does it exist? And frankly, how can it charge superior prices and not just have anyone be able to uh, mm -hmm. kind of erode away those margins? So can you talk about what that was like for you looking at the competitive uh, landscape and then thinking through your pricing and brand? Yeah, so the climbing industry is a little bit unique in that essentially one company has dominated it for the last 12 years. Um, depending on who you ask, they control about 90% of the US market. Um, so doing quite well. And the US market is definitely the largest for climbing. Um, they control most of the UK market. Um, there's one company in Germany. Germany also has a really large market and another one in France, which is like the four largest. Um, but by all means, this one company controls it, or Oxygen Pro, they're kind of in the leaders. Um, and the thing that, you know, we always said is right, all these gyms are using them. And again, talking to customers and talking to users at that point, not customers, you know, why are they using it and why haven't they switched? Um, and the litany of complaints that people have about this company is long. <laughs> like I can go on and on and on. And the, I never understood that. If they were so frustrated by the software, then why wouldn't they switch? It wasn't because of money. These companies are now raising millions and millions of dollars. Earthtrax raised 38 million from a PE firm. Um, you know, they're investing millions in their infrastructure. They have these huge facilities. So it wasn't that. So what was the problem? Um, and it really was that there was no other possibility for a climbing gym just because of climbing's unique needs. Um, some of the on the legal compliance side, you know, you're climbing upwards of 30 feet in some of these facilities. So the uh, just potential liability for them is much higher than yoga where you're doing a handstand. So they need to be able to track what you can and can't do they're also just really high volume, right? Like yoga studios, CrossFit, you have, you know, handfuls of classes coming in and out at any time. Climbing, you have upwards of 1300 people in a single day sometimes. So those wow. two things made a mind body or a lot of fire, other platforms not fit them. So they've just been stuck. So once we kind of realized that it wasn't money, which is why they were sticking there, then it made it really clear that a better platform that worked and actually fit their needs that were specific to climbing could charge a premium price and be much better. And kind of what we've always said at TeamSnap and we've always said at Capitan is yes, we are premium, but the other part of that is that it'll continue evolving. You're not gonna buy a product that's stale. We continue to listen to our customers, mm. improve, reiterate the entire building process for our first version. 
we had gyms meeting with them weekly to make sure that we were actually solving gym managers and owners needs. Um, and I think that's really appealing to these businesses. You know, without, uh, without naming any names, um, though off record, we certainly have named some of these uh, other businesses by name. What are some of the, what, what common mistakes do you see in startup companies building B2B SaaS solutions? And how have you, how have, how has your experience primed you to avoid those mistakes in the, uh, one second, let me also back up a little bit more here. Maybe a better place to start is actually, you now know the space very well and you're focusing on it. You came before from TeamSnap, which is making this type of software for uh, sports leagues. Can you tell us more about how you actually came to this mm -hmm. idea? Because I think one thing that I might not have emphasized and clarified is that actually you are building the product at the same time that you're selling it to the product, uh, to your customers. Is that a correct statement? Fantastic. So that yep. seems yep. like exactly. the dream to have, if you can tell more about that. <laughs> Yeah, so the way it started out is actually um, when I was still on the sales team, I was taking a design class through one of these boot camps through Design Lab part time. Uh, and the last project you had to do was come up with an app from scratch. Um, so essentially using everything you learned over the course of the eight months um, and actually apply that to a new, completely new idea. Um, and I would say 95% of them were like, an app that people wanted, right? It was, you know, how to drink more water or how to get better at, you know, XYZ. It was very much like a problem of one, but it would be really cool if this app existed for me. Um, and I have never really, again, been interested in that side of things. And I had, like everyone in Colorado, just joined a climbing gym because eventually, if you live here long enough, you have to. <laughs> um, and I went to my gym, which is one of the largest here. Um, and they handed me a paper form to fill out information for my membership. And that kind of struck me because I'd worked with sports organizations for two and a half plus years at that point um, and helping them move away from pen and paper and modernizing all of that. And so it was kind of odd. And like, I'm looking around this facility, which I know costs a lot of money. It's huge. It's like right in the, you know, one of the artsy districts of Denver. Um, and so I looked into it and that's when I learned they were using this platform, Rock Gym Pro. Um, and actually on Rock Gym Pro's website, um, I thought maybe my gym was doing it wrong or just not fully <laughs> utilizing the software, but they had a whole section how having performs is actually not a bad thing um, because then you have a hard copy of it. And then the process for having, you know, your front staff type it in, then having a manager review and scan it. And I was like, this is bananas. <laughs> this is, you know, uh, 10 years behind every other industry. So that's when I really started looking more into climbing and finding out all of this. Um, so that was what spurred the initial idea. Um, yeah. Fantastic. So some of the takeaways I'm really drawing from here, uh, again, with this idea of if someone is coming in the next year, right, they don't have the startup work experience that you and I have, how would they assess a founder mm -hmm. like you and what you did well and what things are good things to look for in other similar traits, right? One, you had sales experience in this industry, right? Like your, your idea didn't come out of nowhere. Um, so you have both the professional experience. Then two, you know, very, uh, very, very obvious in many ways, but you are also a user. You embarked and practiced this activity in your free time. And so when you notice this gap combined mm -hmm. with your sales experience, you thought like, hmm, interesting. This seems like a very solvable problem that can also be monetized. Great. And then you went through your design course and you built out wireframes and they look very, very polished. Tell me uh, from 
I, I don't know if you know quite well, but even if you can give a range from conception of the idea to building of the wireframes I know, for your class to finally, what came first? Did you take, how, how did your first sale happen? I guess this is what I wanted to comment on. Yeah, so the first gym, or the first reason I cut, uh, reached out to gyms was for this class. Um, because you had to interview potential users. That's obviously for a user research class, you're what you're going to have to do. Um, so I had reached out to, you know, probably about maybe 50 or so gyms because my, you know, uh, mentor in the class had said, you know, most people aren't going to respond. Like you maybe get 10 responses of a survey. And then the last question was, will you actually hop on a call? Um, and he's like, you'll probably get like, you know, three or four, which is kind of what you're aiming for with user research. Kind of after the fourth call, you start to hear all the same things. Um, and so I did that, but at the time didn't realize quite how uh, gregarious and talkative the climbing community is. So I got way too many responses and way too many uh, people that wanted to hop on interviews, which is a fantastic problem to have. Um, and one of those gyms had actually been looking for a platform. And so actually um, backing up a little bit too, originally the idea was not to handle memberships and waivers and all those things. I know they're all using Rock Gym Pro and people would complain about it, um, but they would the one good thing it did was that it did everything right so it didn't mm -hmm. do a pos particularly well and didn't do a scheduler well but it did everything a climbing gym needed so the idea of moving away to a platform that didn't memberships really well but didn't have waivers wasn't appealing because it would just create more work on their end so looking at then that retention issue that i talked about before that was where i was going to focus and really look on more the communication side of things because it's really hard for gyms to do that um, particularly for new climbers you know when you go to yoga or crossfit or Pilates, anything, you're in a class and the teacher is holding your hand through that process, right? They always ask, is anyone new here? Do you need help? They can see you struggling and they can go over and help you. Climbing, when I joined my climbing gym, I said, okay, now what? And they said, go climb. <laughs> I said, I don't know how, that's the problem. Um, and so a lot of people turn out, like it's just a very, very complicated sport. There isn't that hand holding. It's filled with jargon. There's, you know, different uh, equipment you need for different types of climbing. It's literally intimidating. You have to climb 30 feet in the air. <laughs> like it's just mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a lot um, going against it in a lot of ways. Um, so the initial idea was let's focus on that side, kind of like Team Snap did, where they actually focused on that more like B to C side of things, which was the communication and engagement from coaches to players and parents. Um, start there, kind of get our foot in the door. And then, you know, once we have enough time and capital, then we can invest and build it. And memberships and waivers and all that. The communicator will really tackle that retention issue they're having and was a much, you know, smaller thing to bite off. I and mean, at the time, no real good competitors there. So that's where we were starting. Um, and a gym in, uh, that we've been working with in Pennsylvania was actually looking for something similar. Um, and so I finished the class, had a prototype, um, and I sent it to them. And I said, out of curiosity, because they had been vetting a couple of other companies, who did you decide to go with? And they said, oh, actually we decided none of them really fit what we're looking for, we're gonna build our own. Um, I said, that's interesting. What do you think of my prototype? And they said, actually, that's exactly what we want. So that's where I put on my sales hat again. And I said, well, look, I don't wanna open a gym in Pennsylvania. You don't wanna start an app. Like, why don't we work <laughs> together? I think this could be really interesting. And I said, yes, and I panicked. <laughs> I was like, crap, now I need to actually build this thing. Um, Amazing. Because I cannot do that. <laughs> yeah, and so that's where uh, you got involved actually a little bit. I was like, I need a co-founder because one, I need to build this. And so I need someone technical, but also I know that I do not have all the answers. And I think, you know, collaboration is really important, particularly that early on when you have to make 
really big fundamental decisions that can really chart kind of the rest of the company um, trajectory. So I sent an email out to all of Venture for America, <laughs> all the past fellows and current fellows and said, okay, this is kind of where I'm at. Um, I think this retention issue is really problematic in climbing. Climbing's growing. Um, it's going to be a billion dollar industry. The trajectory is just up and up. It's going to be in the Olympics. Like it got an Oscar for you solo. Um, I have this gym. They're really interested in Ted. They've agreed. They're not interested. They've agreed to be the first pilot, uh, but I need to build it. So I need yes. someone to help me do that. Um, and actually a great advice you said is I was on the fence of, do I send this email or do I not? Because it's just kind of, I don't know. A, you know, I'm sending out to hundreds of thousands, thousands. How many alumni are there now? We're in the thousands. It, we're in the um, thousands. Of people, you know, potential. Yeah, <laughs> rejection, right? You know, not hearing from anyone. Um, but kind of as you said, it's like, well, you don't need, you know, a hundred co-founders. You need a co-founder. So, like, what's the worst <laughs> that happens, right? Um, so, sent it out, um, and thankfully, the overlap between like someone that's like youngish and in tech and startups, and is also a climber, is very large. <laughs> <laughs> so I got lots and lots of responses, um, but ended up bringing, uh, <laughs> bringing up Wesley Vernon, who was a 2013 fellow in Venture for America. Um, one, just because he's like a technical kind of had all the experience studying computer science, um, has the director of engineering at a cybersecurity company before co-founding and serving a CTO at a utility SaaS company, um, which was amazing. <laughs> and I had that experience, but then also had the climbing side of it. So I had spent a summer as a climbing guide, founded the climbing team at Princeton, um, you know, competed in college and just was climbing most of his life. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, those two things alone or those two categories alone would make him a perfect co-founder. But the other thing that I really, really appreciated is when I was interviewing all of these potential co-founders, they all just like agreed with the idea and loved it. They're like, yeah, this is great. This is perfect. This should exist. So let's go for it. Um, and West is really the only one that like pushed back on a lot of assumptions. Um, you know, have you thought about this way? Well, I don't think that'll work. Um, and I, again, kind of that, I wanted a co-founder, not just someone to build it, um, made him the perfect option. Wow, there's like so much there that we can unpack. Um, some offline <laughs> thoughts. No, no, that was fantastic, Mary. Um, and again, these are things that I've been so honored to share with you just like going forward, right? Like this has been our lives. We've texted about it back and forth, but to piece it together that way, um, I'm again, the audience for this podcast is first and foremost, investors and startups. So there are some things I want to sum up from your experience that will be really useful to investors for startups, among which is like, you already were talking to clients very, very early. That means that your product wasn't just your mind child, but actually in many ways, the market start to pull it out of you. Um, mm -hmm. Just kind of, uh, again, in the ballpark. I mean, from conception of the idea in your design class to actually getting someone who wanted to pay you and collaborate with you to build the software out, how long did that take? Is that less than a year? Yeah, significantly less. That was probably only a few months to get to that point. Um, yeah, I think it was like April to September. So whatever that would, or a little bit before that. I brought Wes on in September, so. Amazing, so like under half a year. So not only did you go from idea yep. to actually having a customer, another portion that's so tremendously exciting about your experiences. So first is, is for investors. Second is there's a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast um, and my writing because it's useful to see it from the other side, right? Now you're going to the bootstrap route, which I think is fantastic. I'm super enthusiastic. Um, and we'll save that last portion for it. But 
also you successfully pulled off finding a highly competent technical co-founder. <laughs> like that's, you know, there, there's an entire canon of literature of people suffocating and dying from not being able to find a technical co-founder. And uh, I, I want to recap that portion as well a little bit, which is that the same things that would make you attractive as a business to an investor, if you were seeking venture capital, was the very same thing that probably helped you get a good technical co-founder. Is that fair? What, what am I missing in that technical co-founder search and journey? No, I think you're totally right. Um, I remember good old Andrew Yang talking about at training camp at VFA. Um, half of us would end up in sales and we'd hate that <laughs> because it's like not maybe the most glamorous of roles. Um, but he talked about how your entire, you know, entrepreneurial journey is sales. It's not just customers, but it is getting your co-founder. It's getting your first employees. It's getting your investors. Um, so yeah, I think sales and where my sales career actually started was not in sales. It was in political campaigns. You get real good at handling rejection. People are mean to you and you kind of learn that you're fine, right? Like I remember standing on so many corners in Miami, just trying to get people to register to vote and, you know, mm. 20 people say no, but then one does and you've registered someone to vote. So it's worth it for that day. Um, and so I think that mentality and starting an outbound sales too, again, most people are saying no. And it's also, you know, particularly an outbound, you have to convince this person to give up the most valuable resource they have, which is their time. Um, to listen to you. And the only way they're going to do that is if you can prove right from the get-go that you can provide them value. Um, mm -hmm. So that just, I think, mentality helps with every customer we've had has been from cold outreach. Um, bring Wes on from cold outreach. Like I'm constantly just reaching out to people and a lot of people don't respond, um, which is fine, but I don't need everyone to respond. I need some people to respond. And the people that do have been highly valuable. Uh, riffing on that theme, I think that when an investor thinks of a CEO and specifically a salesperson, like I fall bias to this specific stereotype as well. I think of a salesperson, an effective one, as one who's very almost aggressive, like Glengarry, Glenn Ross, right? Like, you know, steak knives. Uh, <laughs> it's right. I, I think you know the reference I'm talking about. And again, because I know you mm -hmm. um, and we have a very good relationship, I wanted to highlight that I think your sales style is very, very effective and very but it would not be what I expect. So can you talk about that? Can you talk about what actually makes for effective sales as a CEO versus what an investor may look for as someone who would be able to sell well? Yeah, so I think people wanna feel heard. Um, and so that's why I think honestly sales and design have a lot in common or really effective salespeople and really effective product designers. So I used to always say that sales calls and product research calls go very similarly. <laughs> the only difference is the ending of what you do. You know, an effective salesperson is really digging into that person and figuring out what problems they have. Um, you know, the, there's a lot of people that don't think they have problems, right? But the way they explain stuff. And so you start to dig it out and parse bits and pieces um, to understand really where you can provide value and where you can help. Um, the same thing on product design, right? You're figuring out where the gaps in the existing product are. Um, the difference is at the end of a sales call, you have, you know, the set thing that you can sell them, <laughs> different right, pieces right. you can highlight and things. For a designer, you can actually build a new feature, or build a new flow, or build something new to actually fit that need better. Um, but I think, you know, both of those, people feel like they're heard, and then you're actually fixing their problems, then, you know, that makes the sale very easy, and it makes the product very easy to use. 
when I, when I, again, I'm always coming back, that makes complete sense. I'm always coming back to you, Mary Cornfield, my friend for as scary as this is half a decade. And then <laughs> what's also interesting is because we've been friends for this period of time, it's, it's kind of uncanny to describe ourselves externally, but from an outside investor perspective, you had the network to find the CTO, you had the work experience to be able to sell it. Yourself, you yourself have sales and design experience, and you were an endpoint of the uh, not endpoint. You were an end user of rock climbing software uh, and these things. And these are all, these are all. They are not. I would actually say that they are critical. Uh, I suppose the point I'm trying to make here, and also just to sum up from your experience, is that if an investor was to come in and look at B2B SaaS, first of all, looking at why are B2B SaaS companies so popular in startup investments, right? And you and I both have had work experiences there. It's, uh, you get recurring revenue, software has very, very low cost of scale. Um, it's just a very time proven way of building a solution that you can also get value from. Great, okay, so mm -hmm. that was that. Then uh, between Willing and TeamSnap, you had this experience of building these brands that were premium, so a higher price, they're not the bottom of the barrel, cheap, you know, uh, 99 cent store software solutions. Um, and then also specifically at TeamSnap, you went into this market. So those things are all informing your world. Then all the things that led you before, Sash, really, I mean, in, in some ways, I, I don't wanna say inevitable, but it is funny, again, as I said, describing us externally, it kind of feels oh, like that makes complete sense when you put it like that. Um, so again, you had the work experience, you had the network, you had the sale, you had the, so you had the industry experience. And so you were able to get a CTO as a non-technical co-founder, you were able to get the sale so that you were able to de-risk the product and you have the design experience and you also have the industry experience where you know uh, what the competitive landscape looks like and how to actually, like, so this is before spending a single dollar. I think that, that is also the point I'm trying to make here. Like before spending a single dollar, this is all value mm -hmm. that you, Mary Cornfield, as an individual have. So if an investor is looking to say like, okay, well, Mary's great, but she's also not raising money. What <laughs> is my takeaway from this podcast episode? It's, oh, like sure, Mary's this person, but actually there's all these patterns of experiences that Mary accumulated that made her perfectly positioned to do this in a, in a very lucrative and very common type of a startup business. Um, I have more questions, but before I do, like, does that sound... Does that sound like a good uh, capture of what we were talking about? Yeah, the one thing I would say um, and why I think some of the companies that came and failed with some climbing is yes. because we are B to B to C, um, I'm the C part of that, right? I've never actually owned a gym, um, never managed a gym, probably won't anytime <laughs> soon. Um, but I think a lot of the companies that came before were started by climbers. Um, and so they made stuff that climbers wanted and they tacked on a gym solution. That was kind of, the second part where they saw they could make money. Um, so they made stuff and these were like climbers that were been in it for a long, long time. They've been climbing their whole life. So they made tools for the best climbers, right? It's like the stuff that they wanted. It's the stuff I always joke, they were sitting around a campfire in Yosemite and thought, oh, wouldn't it be so cool if we could have this? And then they made that, um, sure. which is cool, which is fine, but no one wanted to buy it or it was really confusing to new climbers, which is a huge part of the market. Um, so, I, and that was actually one of the questions that Wes asked me when he was interviewing me back on if, you know, he's going to take on this endeavor as well. And he was like, you know, a lot of people say you shouldn't actually build a business in your passion because you start to get really tunnel visioned of what you want. Um, so I joked with him, I'm like, well, jokes on you. I'm not a good climber. <laughs> we I, I also kind of are both ends of the market. Wes is that, you know, 
climber that's been the ins and out has been on both sides actually because he has been around sir has been a guide uh, but a climber to a much higher degree than I have I joined recently and know it's like to become an adult climber which is very different and kind of you know what kind of guidance what kind of I'm looking for for my gym experience is very different than Wes um, so it is nice that we balance each other out there but that industry side of things I think because I actually started on the b2b side of team snap like is why we really focused there first um, and could have gone down the same pitfall that a lot of other companies have. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. No, that makes complete sense. That makes complete sense. In many ways, you are uh, your alpha, your edge is that you don't look like the other founders who are starting rock climbing software companies. You're actually preternaturally, because yeah. of your work experience, coming from the business side. Does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, I always joke that, you know, most people in the climbing industry are named Brad and Chad. <laughs> you kind of have an idea of what they look like. Um, but particularly now, you know, climbing has for a long time, I think, catered more to white, able bodied men, but it's been changing, um, particularly with, you know, climbing indoors being much more popular um, as the final destination, not just seeing it as a training ground to get outside. And climbing gyms are everywhere now. Um, and I think the community building it is amazing, right? It's like physical problem solving and mental problem solving all at once. Um, I love it. Like you build that community aspect. And I think after COVID, people are gonna want that even more than ever. Um, but you know, we're not just designing for the best climbers. We need to design for everyone that's coming and joining this community. Um, another question that came to mind, sorry, I was looping back to a previous one. So between having the idea yeah. to actually getting a CTO and having someone who really wanted to build, that was six months. Like that's very, very fast. Uh, can you tell me how long it took mm -hmm. you to get your first customer from conception of idea to paying customer? Yeah, so <laughs> there's a little hiccup in there as most companies have. So we were launching our uh, beta with uh, three gyms um, right at the beginning or right in the middle of March. 2020, which I don't know if you know, a little thing happened in March 2020, where 100% of climbing gyms closed, which was an interesting spot to be in. And at this point, we were both working on it part-time. Um, I was on TeamSnap, had an amazing manager who's the co-founder of TeamSnap, supported me on having the startup idea on the side. Um, and TeamSnap, being in eSports, also didn't do so awesome in a global pandemic where eSports all stopped. Um, so they all at half the company and I was part of it. So it was this kind of moment of, you know, we can't do the testing we want with these gyms before we get them to pay because we need to, we're not going to build more and, you know, find out that we went down the wrong uh, road. Um, you know, do I look for another job and do it part-time or do I just go full-time on this, you know, thing? Because I think climbing is going to come back even though 100% of the industry is closed right now. Um, yeah. So decided to continue on it with full-time, did Venture for America's Accelerator. Um, and so in that weird period of, you know, obviously people aren't logging climbs because they're not climbing um, in a gym in that period, my co-founder actually met um, someone that runs IT at one of the largest climbing gyms in London, climbing outside. Um, and we have been talking about how there was rumblings that climbing was going to be reopening with reservation systems because mm -hmm. now there's going to be these capacity limits, which climbing had never had before. And they had no idea how they're going to manage that. Um, and the one that was available through Octum Pro was Hard, very hard to use and so climbing gyms already have to add this reservation which is adding friction it being clunky is adding even more friction um and this guy also just didn't like rock and pro <laughs> so we <laughs> talked to him and so uh, 
we built a, a prototype really quickly just in Figma, a design tool, um, showed him, said like, is this something that you think would be interesting? They were also in a holding pattern because they didn't know quite when they'd let it reopen. He said, yes. Um, and so in about a month, we went from prototype to having it fully built out. Um, and then wow, because they're wow. the only climbing gym in England with an outdoor wall, <laughs> yeah, um, they were the only one allowed to reopen first. Outdoor facilities were given the option to reopen before indoor. Um, so for the entire month of July, if you went climbing at a gym in the UK, you made a reservation through Capitan, which is our fun fact. Um, and so they were our first customer for just specifically that little scheduler piece of it. Um, and they used us for about a month and a half, handled about $300,000 in transactions, 14,000 reservations. Amazing. Um, and we were then, you know, in the US started reopening. And so we we're looking at that climb tracking side of things again. Because um, really the scheduler just built out of COVID necessity. It wasn't the goal, but we built it. And talking to that gym in London, he asked us, because um, we told him we were building a climb logging and he was like, oh, okay, that's nice. But have you thought about like registration and memberships and things like that? Um, because to him, we actually weren't that far off. And we realized, originally we thought Rock Gym Pro was so big to replace that it would just take too long. But we realized that there were some gyms that used, you know, every piece of Rock Gym Pro and there were some that used 25%. And because it had been clunky, they actually had already been augmenting it with their own POS and their own scheduler systems and stuff like that. So we had to make the hard decision. Do we go back to that climb logging, which had never really been the end goal, just the way we thought we would get into the industry, or do we double down um, on the memberships and waivers and document management and checking in, checking out, which we knew yes. would take a lot longer to build just because there's a lot more, um, but where we always saw the bigger business opportunity. And so that's when I made that decision. Amazing. So wait, okay. So in July was when you were the only, you know, uh, platform providing reservations in the UK. That was July, 2020. Yep. Okay. And then yep. again, sorry, remind me, when was the conception of the idea? The, May? the design classes was of 2019. Oh, uh, the, oh, sorry. That was, um, April, 2019. Yeah. April, 2019. Okay. So call it end to end is about a year, a year and like three months to go from this is important though, right? It's a year and three months to go from idea to someone paying you to use your solution. Yeah. And then in the middle, you do all these incredible things. You spent the six months where you actually built out the idea. You talked to all the gyms, you found a technical co-founder, you survived, you know, an unprecedented global pandemic in March. Um, and then really was charting this uh, very new, strange territory in the business world. Uh, I, I just also want to put one more plug there probably COVID has demonstrated even more why B2B SaaS companies are so popular, right? Because restaurants can close, laundromats can close, rock climbing gyms can close, but software is essentially on at all times, everywhere constantly, right? And, and so um, to say, even from your perspective, thank goodness you were the B2B SaaS company and not the rock climbing gym. Yeah, I mean, you know, it would have been better to be B2B SaaS and maybe not climbing. 100% of your market closing is not ideal. Um, but in some ways, I think, you know, one life gives you lemons. But I think it did give some gyms. At first, they were just running around because no one knew what was going on, um, mm -hmm. rightfully so. Um, but then I think, you know, as we kind of settled into this new social distancing, gyms realized they needed to revisit how they were operating. And gave them, when gyms, unfortunately, reclosed they knew how they were going to handle social distancing so it gave them time to actually reevaluate what they could do better going forward particularly because you know it used to be this mentality if you build it they will come if you open a climbing gym people will come 
there was, you know, more gyms opening in certain cities and becoming more saturated, but newer cities to climbing, they actually found when a new gym opened in town, it just helped them because it got more people interested in climbing in a lot of ways. But then you have, you know, your Denver's and your cities that were climbing is a lot more mature where now there's just competition everywhere. So there was this, mm. it was already, I think, you know, something kind of on their radar, but when you lose, you know, all of your membership base or not lose your membership base, but your customers aren't coming in, um, you know, it takes that, um, what they kind of took for granted, I think, in terms of revenue, they needed to take a step back and realize they needed to make investments in their infrastructure so they could be stronger coming out. Exactly. And then in many ways, the software infrastructure that you're laying for them via Capitan for reducing churn is, you know, like, a, I, I don't know the space obviously as well as you do, but if a, if a software stack was designed, say, a decade to two decades ago, and it was built assuming that just it didn't have to do any outbound marketing. It didn't have to do any customer handholding. It was just yeah, a bureaucratic. You're, I mean, you're mm -hmm. probably the only, if not the only, among one of the best players positioned for that kind of post-pandemic uh, business landscape, right? And we're seeing that happen in a lot of industries. It checks out to me that that is where you guys are um, going to reap a lot of outsized uh, uh, advantages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. Very, very cool. Yes. So. Um, again, lots of things going on there. It makes complete sense. You're talking to markets. You have the design product. Uh, you know, I think one thing that you said earlier as well that I really want to emphasize in terms of another reason why people love B2B SaaS. I mean, you iterated a feature. You conceived, designed, developed, and then shipped a feature that the UK gym used in a month. That's that's an incredible. I mean, just you know, from the speed of innovation, developing it, and then actually getting people to use it, that's an incredible turnaround. So these are all reasons why, um, you know, one of the things that my readers and uh, my premium subscribers definitely tease me a lot about is I do use a good amount of jargon. It's true. I am going to work on that. And that's also what this episode is helping to do. But there is a reason why there's so much con uh, convergence between entrepreneurs, investors, and users on certain types of models of uh, building and monetizing innovation. And, and your story I, it's really helping me uh, give kind of a vessel to explain, even in very, very particular circumstances, how that all plays out. Okay, so, and then July of, so okay, so July of 2020, uh, you're doing your thing in the UK, and now actually, it's, it's really wild to think about this, but um, it's been a little bit over half a year after that. So tell me about the scaling of Capitan in the second half of 2020, and then how you guys are looking now and plans for 2021, especially, you know, with the vaccine coming out and uh, hopefully a return to some kind of new normal uh, on the horizon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So August is when we officially pulled the plug on the clan mugging, double down on members, all that. Um, when we created the schedule and we had that one gym in the UK using it, we reached out, particularly in the UK. Um, one of the differences is that typically you actually pay every time you go. It's They do have memberships, but it's not as common as it is in the US. So it used to be problems in climbing gyms anyway, where you would have, you know, long lines at the front desk of people trying to pay, which becomes more problematic during social distancing guidelines. Um, so we cold outreached again <laughs> to a bunch of gyms <laughs> in the UK. Again, most didn't respond, um, but some did. And so we demoed with some of them um, and they had, you know, we'd built this thing in a month. So obviously it was not feature complete. There was lots of gaps in it. And so they you know, we're kind of on the fence, like, well, we need this, we need that. And we're like, well, we'll build it. And so we built a bunch of like little features that they had asked for that they would need in about a week. Um, and so we sent it to them. We're like, okay, we have it. Um, because they found out they were going to be able to reopen in about two and a half weeks at <laughs> that point. Um, and they all decided, 
just because again they're running around with you know social distancing and all these unknowns they decided to stick with rock gym pro um and we weren't a fit at the time just because the idea of changing one more thing was just too hard to manage which you know fine and um, but the speed at which we actually built those features and again the responsiveness to their customer feedback or to their feedback at that point not customer um <laughs> two of those gyms one in particular um was really interested in what we would build going forward um, and so when we told him that we were actually planning on building this you know comprehensive solution not just a scheduler they were on board and so him um the initial gym in the uk and then one we actually got in the u.s We've met with them weekly to go over designs. Um, so before we actually build anything to make sure we're heading in the right direction for everything and get their input, because again, they're the experts at running a gym. We are not, we're experts at making technology that helps streamline those things, but the little nuances of the job. We then build it um, by feature, have them test it out, give us more feedback, improve it and keep going. So we've been doing that August um, and are launching the full platform this month. Um, where we feel really confident that it's a platform that a gym could move away from Rock Gym Pro. It's not going to have, you know, feature to feature, um, but it has the like, you know, solid foundation of what they would need. Incredible. Incredible. Okay. So, um, so August was customer in UK. And I think if I remember correctly, you did get a second customer in the second half of 2020 as well. Is that correct? Or was that early this year? Um, so yeah, that was the gym in uh, the UK and also the one in New Jersey will be the customers for this coming platform. Oh, Not incredible, just incredible, incredible. So now that you've got the platform in a good enough version where it's a true platform and you can, uh, as I mm -hmm. love saying, kind of rinse, lather, repeat, right? Like you've got enough of this stuff out where if new customers are telling you about new features that they want, you can say like, yeah, that'll come in new version, but like actually the platform's ready to go. Um, tell me about how you're yeah. projecting your sales uh, targets for this year. Yeah, so our goal is to think it'll be split between the UK and US. Um, the UK is a smaller market, there's about 200 gyms, the US is about 550. Um, and the reason we're still targeting a 50-50 split is the US is much larger, so there's a better chance there. But then the UK um, has a couple of like really specific needs that for whatever reason, Rock Gym Pro was just ignored for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. so two tiny ones of like just ways that you can listen to your customers and then they feel heard. Um, in the US, you sign a waiver because you waive away your rights when you go into a climbing gym is the idea. <laughs> um, in the UK, you cannot waive away your rights. You acknowledge the risk you have, but your rights are inherent to you. Mm -hmm. um, and so the association that governs all of indoor climbing in the UK, um, the Association of British Climbing Walls, you know, sends out their recommendations that have been tested by barristers and all these things on what they should do. Um, and Rock Gym Pro like, won't let them rename a waiver and acknowledgement of risk. So like at the end of the day, it doesn't really change anything, but it's like there's always this little thing that just like irks climbing gyms. Um, and then another one is that in the UK for memberships, when you do have them, very common uh, to always pay by a direct debit. That's the normal way that customers do it. And Rock Gym Pro refuses to do that. It's not that the technology doesn't exist. They're using Stripe as we are um, for payment <laughs> processing. And Stripe has it, Rock Gym Pro just doesn't want to do it because they've you know had this incumbent advantage for so long um, and really honestly product improvements kind of ceased a long time ago and um, so like little things like that a couple of other UK have made us really appealing to gyms there just because and that's actually another example they don't call themselves gyms they call themselves centers <laughs> so we do that in our <laughs> software um, and so it's little things like that where they feel heard for the first time by a software company so you know they have the same frustrations that US climbing gyms have had with Rock Gym Pro, but with that additional little um, layer on top of it that 
they feel like, you know, Capitan is really built for the UK market as well. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. So you're thinking of splitting half of it between uh, the UK because you can uh, address needs that your 500 pound gorilla competitor isn't addressing. And then of course the United States is very, very large. The reason that I'm asking this question mm -hmm. is again, I, I keep going back to this timeline, but the speed at which you went from, so in April of this year, it will be two years since you've had your idea and now you're working full time, you're, you have a CTO, mm -hmm. you're revenue generating and actually the platform's done. Like that's, that's an incredible amount of progress in a very well-defined period of time. One of the things that, uh, I'll just come out and say it, is that I, there are companies I review on the equity crowdfunding platforms where I look at their timeline. I look at how long they filed their financials and I look at their revenue and I think like, hmm, I'm not convinced that you've spent your time well, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and that's why it's so yeah. <laughs> I think instru instructive, instructional to hear in this kind of nitty gritty detail, again, why SaaS is so popular, why B2B SaaS is so popular, how quickly you can iterate and get feedback and then move forward and build your business. So for this year, um, and this will probably tie into the, the last segment of um, what's on my mind, and I'd love to hear more from you, is how do you, so you are going the bootstrap route. Does that also change how you think about what your sales targets are in terms of how many gyms you'd love to be uh, on your platform by the end of the year? Yeah, so I think, you know, taking out my salary, our burn rate right now is about $18 a month. So we don't have a lot of expenses. Um, we don't plan on spending a lot on marketing. Um, another thing that I think is uh, widely beneficial to us, even though we are B2B, is usually if you're B2C, right, you have a ton of your B2B, you have a ton of money sales. Um, but the climbing community is so tight-knit that we've actually forged these, you know, really strong relationships with leaders in the climbing space in the UK and in the US that they're constantly referring to us. We always joke that they are our marketing engine. <laughs> they send us people. For the longest time, we had this very, very simple landing page. I think like in total, there was 10 sentences on it, but we would still get people reaching out because I think there has been such a desire for something new and these people have been referring us. Um, so our burn rate is very low. Um, 20 is just kind of, you know, I think what we think is realistic. We also don't want to, in some ways, overload ourselves too much because we do yep. think that that responsiveness is why people want to switch and we know that when people start using it there's things that are going to need to tweak that's the only way we actually find out um you know you can look at a prototype all you want you can try it out when you're not using it full time um so the 20 is like a manageable amount that we can feel like yeah this is like working there's a big enough market in both countries that want this um without actually overloading us and we can't you know continue adapting as we had before Perfect. Perfect. I'll say this, Mary, you know, I appreciate you for sharing concrete numbers. The reason why that's valuable to me is I do find your precedent to be so, in, to be so instructional, right? You, you finalized your uh, platform and yes, there'll be tweaks to it, but like it's a platform that you can sell and it, it's a genuine platform. So to go from two to 20 by the end of the year in 10 months, like that is what you expect of a B2B SaaS company, right? There's no it's not like you're setting up a gigafactory to yep. build Tesla cars, right? It's just, it's when, when it works, that's yeah. what it works. And <laughs> similarly, what you said about the burn portion of it too, it's like, yes, there's human capital costs, but otherwise SaaS is very, very cheap to build, right? You have the one-time fee, but then, you know, to, to provide that service mm -hmm. to more gyms, your marginal costs are very, very low. So I know I'm kind of beating the drum on why I love B2B SaaS, but you as an entrepreneur in that space, I'm highlighting these advantages of why 
you put your time into it, how you sold another very talented individual, Wes, to put his time into it, and ultimately how you're solving these real problems at a very, very breathtaking speed. By April of next year, again, from idea to wherever you will be in three years, you will have achieved a significant amount of traction. Um, and I think a lot of how you're going to do that comes with your background, comes with things that you've done, comes with the uh, way you've chosen to solve that problem. But a lot of it is also quite representational of patterns that we've seen in startups and what makes them succeed. Um, perfect. You are also in a unique position. I'd love to kind of wrap up with this last portion, uh, this last segment, which is that you are currently bootstrapping your business. So before we uh, talk a little bit more about that, can you tell me about uh, what it means to bootstrap, what it means to you to bootstrap, and why you're choosing to bootstrap, uh, and why investors won't be able to get any sweet equity in your company? <laughs> Yeah, so bootstrapping just means we're not taking outside investment. We've gotten a little bit of grant funding through Venture for America, um, but we have looked and the market, you know, is a billion dollars, which we think is there's plenty of room for two entrepreneurs like me and my co-founder to make a nice business, um, but it's not going to be, you know, we're not going to control 100% of the market anytime soon or ever. Um, so it's not maybe as interesting to a lot of investors out there. Um, at least in the VC side of things where they want a 10x return, that's going to be hard with something like us. Mm -hmm. We have talked about expanding into other industries. So whether that's skateboarding, which is actually becoming really popular in the UK or skiing, where you also have these high churn rates. Um, so it's not out of the question that we can expand and grow that market potential. Uh, but right now we are focused on climbing. Um, we have talked about maybe bringing a strategic investor. So less someone that wants, you know, for the 10x return, but has deep ties into climbing um, that could, you know, again, because it is such a community driven sport, you know, help us get some of the interest into the larger gym franchises, because those um, are going to be a much different sale than just a single location gym. Um, but kind of, you know, looking at our burn rate, looking at our potential revenue, it just, we don't even know what we would do with the money. <laughs> it's kind of uh, what I would say is, you know, if you gave me $100,000 today, I have nothing to spend it on, you know, our burn rate isn't going to change, we're not going to start spending money frivolously. So, um, we're not attractive to investors and they're not really attractive to us at the moment. What's um what's so funny about you saying that is I bet you many of my listeners would say, oh, I actually do want to put money into that company, right? Um, and equity crowdfunding has really <laughs> expanded the profile of the investor where do they want to make money? Of course they do. But do yeah. investors also feel de-risk when they like or they feel they understand who the founder is and what the business they're solving is, right? Uh, could I believe a ton of climbing bros want to put money into Capitan if you were doing the equity crowdfunding raise? Of course I could, right? That's not to say <laughs> that you would want that, but that, that to me yeah. is, is not a demand problem. Uh, but what I do love again what, about what's so remarkable about what you're saying is founders oftentimes feel a great deal of pressure to make their business appear venture backable when that's just not the reality, right? Um, so that's, so there's like multiple, and yep. then the venture capital itself oftentimes has a very condescending tone to those who want to build what they call so-called lifestyle businesses, right? When actually that's just like 90% of all business in history. Mm -hmm. It's like more than 90%. I'm actually, I'm very, very right. confident, but I'll have to get you a source of that are, are like not venture backable. And so that's also oftentimes, uh, a mm -hmm. comment that I'll write about certain business. I'm like, this is a great small business. You know, you're a subscription box for, uh, you know, uh, uh, paraphernalia for pets, right? Great business. You bootstrapped it. Your run rate is like 5 million. Amazing. I have no idea how this right. is going to become a billion dollars. And they, and you know, that we have to do that dance of where they're like, oh, I think it can be. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, but 
aside from the demand side and then aside from the kind of venture return side of it, is there also any qualitative advantages or even qualitative uh, components that you wanted to keep by keeping a bootstrap business? Yeah, I mean, I've been at companies where they've successfully raised a lot of money. Willing came out of YC, so they raised money and then did a round when I was there. Team Snap had done a big raise right before I got there, about $35 million. Um, I was in the process pre-COVID, <laughs> another quite large round. Um, and I think that does give you some flexibility, but it also it hampered in a lot of ways the freedom the company had because suddenly mm. these, you know, the objectives became the investors' objectives. Um, and you know, growth came at I think the cost of everything else. Is you just needed to grow, um, and so it just yeah, it made it really. And I think what's really nice is where we are right now. We could go in a lot of different directions still within climbing. Um, and, you know, build a really quality business. I mean, Wattify is a perfect example. They bootstrapped, um, you know, are doing millions of year in revenue um, and, you know, changing how CrossFit gyms operate and doing quite well. <laughs> I'm like quite happy. Um, and, you know, Wes and I always joke, like, we don't need to be billionaires. We can just be millionaires and we'll be fine. <laughs> the, the talking about the incentives of founders, investors, I couldn't agree anymore. Um, one thing I did want to, you know, maybe leave a little bit teaser for, for the ongoing future. I look forward, hopefully, to when we can revisit this conversation um, as you continue to proceed and grow. I have one of my first episode, episodes, one of the first editions of my premium newsletter was called Never Compete with Dumb Money. And I think in some ways you're addressing uh, this idea of how can an investor in a in a case where you are not that enthusiastic about selling uh, ownership of your company, right? But you could if the investor provided value. So can you talk a little bit more about what smart money could look like to you? What an investor who, you know, and let's let's be even a little bit more expansive here. Let's assume that it is an investor who wants to support you. Maybe they're a climbing bro. Maybe they're um, someone who just understands the space and they like B2B SaaS um, and they want to invest in you, but they don't have an entrepreneurial background, right? So what does smart money look like possibly to someone like that also with a caveat we're not talking alex huddled you know incredible rock climbing influencer who can make it rain on you theoretically so someone who's neither of those extremes but but still wants to be smart money to your business yeah so i think you know the climbing industry in itself i think is going to go through quite an interesting year um there's already been consolidation on the market before this year. Um, and I think given the financial shape that a lot of gyms are coming out of COVID with, um, I would be very surprised if that doesn't continue at a more rapid rate. Um, PE has already entered the field. So investors are entering it and you know, acquiring these gyms up. My gym in Denver was acquired by Earthtrex. Um, and so I think that's gonna continue happening. So I think you know, as we keep going down that route, um, we have not been working with the big chains just because kind of that process I talked about earlier, how climbers are really eager to talk and stuff. Um, you know, they have small teams, but Earthtrax, you know, the largest climbing gym company is a much bigger team. So there's a lot of levels to go through and it becomes a very different sales process. Um, so I think, you know, the investors that are already investing in the climbing space, um, you know, have those ties that are higher up the hierarchy in those bigger companies. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be more and more of them in the coming year. Um, that's the type of investor we'd probably be looking at for those Perfect. actual like industry connections for us. One of the things I'm hearing from that is it's definitely, it, it, there can be challenges to equity crowd investors gaining those relationships um, and those kind of unfair advantages. However, 
most equity crowdfunding investors, certainly most of my readers, are working professionals in their background. So like, you know, if you were building some kind of a SaaS platform for rockets, I actually have a good number of readers who are, you know, rocket engineers and thruster engineers or like doctors in a certain case. And they're providing their day job expertises to that. Um, but, you know, and maybe I'm a little optimistic, so sound check me here, but let's say there was uh, an equity crowd investor who, after looking at a lot of deals, writing a lot of deal memos, throwing a few money and betting on some courses, found that they really actually liked the uh, fitness wellness space. And so they found that that was something that they do. They were connecting with founders. They were, they ended up connecting um, and getting a little bit of a, a developed expertise in that, in that space. Would that be something that would be interesting to you potentially? Not to say that's obviously very different than a full-time VC who's just specializing in the earth track and the um, kind of wellness technology space, but would that be, would that be something that fits more in the profile that you're talking about? Yeah, I think if we decide to go down the route where we're not just looking at climbing anymore, right? Where we want to expand into, again, the two I said, skating or skiing or something along those lines or more in the outdoor space. There's lots of directions I think we can go. I think climbing is starting off. And so I think if we decide that we want to branch into that, that's when it requires more capital um, and more expertise in just the fitness and wellness industry at large. Um, so that's when I think that type of investor would be more appealing. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, you're, uh, you're preaching to the choir in the bootstrap world. Uh, I have, there's like, I'm not even running a tech <laughs> product. So um, uh, I will certainly cheer for your freedom and your autonomy, <laughs> though. I also acknowledge that many entrepreneurs are a little bit uh, wired differently and have uh, visions of grandeur and ambition that, you know, is very person to person. So either way that you go, I'm super, super excited to stay in touch. Uh, last questions. So, especially because you're bootstrapping, you have no skin in the game. Uh, sorry, yeah, you are free of skin in the game. You can just give a very real, uh, very insider take on it. So as a B2B SaaS founder, what questions should startup investors be asking when they're analyzing businesses like you? Have you ever had that moment where you're like, oh, why don't you ask me about this? Or like, oh, thank God they didn't ask me about that. Um, and really just like what advice from the inside perspective can you lend? Yeah, so I think the big one that you already dug into is, you know, how long did it take from building to actually selling? Um, that one, I think, is actually sometimes less in B2B is because, you know, consumers are willing to use little apps that do one thing. Um, companies are looking for much more complicated tools, usually. Um, and so that does take a lot longer to build. And the other thing that happens at a lot of companies, thankfully not in climbing gyms, um, is that it's a lot harder to actually get that sale. So Actually, a good example is TeamSnap. We mostly sold to nonprofit sports organizations. So every decision um, to actually buy TeamSnap always had to get board approval, which always threw a monkey wrench in because you can have an amazing demo with someone, you know, the treasurer, they love it. And they're all on board and then they go to the board meeting and, you know, someone decides that there wasn't on a demo, this isn't even another product that you're not going to be spending more money and it's just killed um, that mm. way. So us having like very small teams to work with um, and a very quick sales process because of that um, is an advantage. And, you know, I mean, I have a friend that was in the accelerator that's doing GovTech, which is about as slow as you can go. <laughs> his price tag is also a lot higher. So right. it's, you know, yeah, you were in GovTech, <laughs> you get it. But, you know, then he can justify a much higher price tag from these organizations because he already knows they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on the same problem. Um, so I think just understanding the length of the sales cycle is really important. Um, and yeah, probably one of the, can be of the downfall B2B. I 
love that. It's it's something that I intu- intuitively ask and something I keep a tab on. I'm a very kind of chronological thinker. But um, thank you for highlighting that because actually that will inform me to ask kind of more explicitly that question, like how long did it take for you to identify this need to start selling it? Um, what does your sales cycle look like? And certainly for me, I ask unit you know, economics all the time. Um, but I think tying those together uh, will hopefully make me a better investor. Um, incredible. Mary, anything outstanding, outdressing? Was there any questions that uh, you think that I didn't ask you or you were like dying to get out of your chest? No, I think you answered it all. I think uh, there's never a good time to start a company. We started or like really took off when every climbing gym was closed. Um, so thinking about it, you should just do it. Uh, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Uh, for our listeners, if they want to connect with you, tell them where they can connect with you and find you. Yeah, so you can just go to our website, which is helloprivatetown.com. Uh, the numbers on there, I'll most likely be the person answering them. So feel free to call us. We'll be talking to customers, climbers, um, anyone in the climbing industry. Um, yeah, but that's the best way. Perfect. And I'll have the, that URL in the show notes as well, of course. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the inaugural episode of Startup Investing for All. Uh, Mary, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, it's really been such a uh, privilege and an honor to share this journey with you. And I, I do think there's something very nuanced about being able to talk about your journey from this kind of meta external uh, standpoint, because the inside standpoint, I'm sure, uh, does not make everything sound as nice as, uh, as, as we now can, in retrospect, <laughs> say. So I super appreciate the trust. Yeah. You know, I, the, <laughs> the audience that comes are investors and entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs want to know oftentimes how you're doing these things. Um, and investors want to know like how they can analyze and judge uh, and assess, you know, startup investment opportunities kind of with this edge that you and I have. So uh, this is the first, I look forward to the next time that we have uh, our follow-up conversation. And to the rest of the listeners, this is Muhan and Mary signing off.